So we're excited for them and and uh, what the Lord is going to do in their life. And uh, also say I I think I forgot to mention it that Sunday night Greg had mentioned it. Say congratulations to Greg Jacobs as well. I, that he had mentioned I think it was a couple of weeks ago how well, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter three. How um, he got a promotion at work, but he never said to what. And, uh, and I kind of like that, actually. I kind of like that he didn't actually say to what. Um, and uh, the Bible talks about, let another man praise thee. And, uh, and so I kind of like that. But anyhow, just the whole story there of him showing up here and, and getting somehow getting John Lowe's permission to marry Ruth is still mind-boggling to me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but the Lord was certainly in that. And, uh, but he started off when he got here, he got a job as low as you can get at Bernard Builders. And, uh, and he's worked his way through. So you've been there for how many years now? October will be 30 years, and he is now the assistant general manager. Right, that's just a great testimony, putting the Lord first, how he's honored the Lord, and, and just the Lord blessing that all along. And so uh, congratulations to you as Greg. I, I think that's, that's just a good testimony. And yeah, Romans chapter 3 tonight. And now we're going to talk about assistant general managers to double their tithe. Romans chapter 3, some really fascinating stuff, stuff that I hope is a help to you tonight. And uh, when, you, when we read these verses, they might actually sound a bit confusing. It's one of those sections of chapter 3, when you're even going through your own devotions at times, you're like, okay, what, what, what did he just say? But I think you'll have good understanding of it here in a few minutes. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and thou mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall, uh, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God uh, hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported as, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you. We thank you for your word. I ask your blessing upon the service tonight, Lord. I pray that you be glorified and honored. Lord, please control what I say and how I say it, Lord. I know I certainly need you. Please, I pray that you would work on your hearts through your grace and your help and Lord, that you would strengthen us and draw us closer to you. Please help me to stay true to your word. And Lord, I do pray if anyone is here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that even this evening they would repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're coming into chapter 3. Let's remember what we just covered very quickly. I, I do have a lot I want to cover tonight. I, I, I don't think I'll be long, but I do need to get through this. When we go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, is the very first time Paul brings up the concept of the importance of the righteousness of God. 
Okay, that's going to be a main theme throughout. As we're coming down through chapter 3, he's really going to be getting into the necessity of why we need the righteousness of God. He's going to basically cover chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, diving into that. Okay, and within chapter 1, once he established that in chapter 1, that's when he went off from there to talk about really how all are condemned. Chapter 1, those are condemned, those who have turned from God, those who have ignored God, those who don't have the law, those who have turned on the idols, those who have forgotten about God, uh, those who have turned under their sin, their vileness, whatever the case is, he said, they are condemned. But he gets into chapter 2, he continues. He shows how even even a person who's a moralist, who's ethical and has good morals, who's religious... They are also condemned, just like the group in chapter 1. And, of course, he continues and goes even further. Even the Jew, you're condemned as well. And so, again, his whole point is is what he's going to be driving at in chapter 3 and verse 19, where he says this. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So that's where he's driving at with this right now. Um, and the truth is, in each of those groups, all of those groups think they're fine. They do. Those who are in, in chapter 1, uh, um, they're usually not even thinking about God, don't even believe God even exists. They're not thinking about eternity at all. And, and, some, who, and, and, and some who might believe in God, they'll, they'll usually maintain the thing that God would never send them to hell. The second group that looks to the religion and their perceived moral life, they also trust and believe because of what they are doing, they are fine. They've been baptized, they're in a church, they try to do good, they're not, they're not as wicked as what they see in the culture. And they are completely ignorant of their need for the righteousness of God in order to be saved. Now as we start chapter 3 in these first eight, eight verses, understand Paul, by the time he writes the book of Romans... He has been preaching this message going back to his, before his first missionary journeys. Of, of how the gospel works, how justification works, this isn't new right now. So while he's been preaching this, the Jews have also presented arguments against him. We've come across a few of those that were going through Acts. We'll come, we'll come across some more as we continue going through the book of Acts. I mean, the Jews could not stand how Paul, as he just said in Romans chapter 2, you too are condemned. It's not just those in chapter 1 who are without the law. It's just not those who are the moral ones, but also the Jews are condemned. And so, since Paul has been preaching this for years, the Jews now had set arguments against Paul. How to refute what he was preaching. They had three primary arguments that we see in the book of Acts and here that they argued against Paul's, what they would refer to as Paul's theology. Paul, in verses 1 through 8, is addressing those arguments. He goes right at the three arguments that have been given to him. These are the arguments what a Jewish rabbi would try and teach as to why Paul is wrong. Paul puts them in in the form of three questions in our text. In verse 1, again in verse 3, and again in verse 5. They attack Paul. I'm going to put it as three C's, the way they attacked him. If if you're taking notes, you can write this down. You'll probably need more clarity as I go through them. But the three C's that I put them as, is they attacked him as his countrymen, 
covenants and character. God's covenants and God's character is where they tried to attack him. And we're going to see that. That's what the first eight verses are dealing with. The three primary arguments that Jews gave against Paul. These arguments, as we're going to see, are very shallow, very superficial. And primarily what they did is just distract from the main point of the gospel that Paul was preaching. They were designed to distract. They were designed to give anybody who is looking for a reason not to believe to give them something to grab onto. Many like to have arguments against the truth of Scripture. Of course, many times these things are not genuine questions or concerns, but more from a place of refusing to believe and looking for anything to dismiss it. So what I want to do this evening is we're going to look at the three arguments that Paul brings up here that were, that were being taught by Jewish leadership against Paul's preaching. So let's cover the first, the first one I gave you, countrymen, verse 1 and 2. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. One of the first and primary arguments that was often given against Paul in his day was dealt with the Jews being God's people. Paul, we are God's chosen people. By how you talk, we have no advantage, but we are God's chosen people. Therefore, what you are preaching is not true. How can we possibly be condemned? We are God's chosen people. And so this is the first objection. Again, the Jew would naturally ask, if Paul is correct in his teaching about all of us condemned, then what special benefit do we arrive being a Jew? Obviously, we have benefits. God's chosen us, so Paul's, Paul's preaching cannot be true. They said, if we're condemned like the rest of the world, then what good was it to actually be a Jew? Again, the Jew believed because of their heritage, their circumcision, they were basically excused from judgment. They were, they're, they're the children of Abraham. The, the, remember, I had the trip to Israel. Um, and when we do go, I'm actually going to try and see if I can request him specifically. And then thereafter that, every time I go, I would like a Christian to lead it. But I, I want you to experience this man who's a strong, orthodox Jew. I want you to listen to him as he talks about Paul and he can't stand him. Um, I mean, just... Cannot stand the Apostle Paul. But you'll see, the same thing I'm bringing up to you is what he believes. Is what he believes. I even asked him, so what's going to happen to you when you die? And he really did say, first of all, he goes, I really don't know. But he's not worried about judgment at all, he said, because of who I am. So the argument was against Paul, if our heritage, our law... Our covenant sign of circumcision give us no advantage. Then being a Jew means absolutely nothing. Then there's no benefit in being an Israeli, being Jewish. And there's no benefit in this. Then what you're saying is, is that God's called people aren't special. And they would say, we know that's not true. That was the argument. So they believe because they are God's chosen, they are thus safe. Oh, did that harm them greatly, that mentality. They became self-satisfied, indulgent, as if God was obligated to save them because of their heritage. So 
So they're saying, Paul, by you saying we are condemned, you are attacking God himself because he is the one who has called us his people. It's what God did. I'm not going to turn there for time's sake because time is going. I do have a lot I want to cover. You can write these verses down. I was going to turn there. I I was going to say here would be some of their verses they would give. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 14 and 15. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 21. All this dealing with God choosing out the nation of Israel. There's multitudes of verses like that. So their question again is, what, what good is Judaism if it isn't in itself? It doesn't even save us from sin. It doesn't save us from condemnation. It doesn't offer some advantage over the heathen. You're saying we're in the same boat as the pagans. But we are God's chosen people. And Paul responded with this argument that he's going to give right here. He said, what advantage is there? Much every way. Let me cover that first. The truth is, the nation of Israel has had great advantage. And at the same time, it would be, I would be remiss if I did not bring up, with, this message isn't about that, but I would be remiss if I did not bring up, they've also endured great suffering throughout all of world history. It really is incredible, the amount of suffering. Matter of fact, I know Jim Farr sent it out to several of you. There's going to be a 95-year-old survivor from the Holocaust that was in prison speaking in Anchorage on Tuesday night. But nonetheless, they had great advantages over any other type of nation in the world. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's blessing on Israel. They had the very Shekinah glory that led them by day and by night. They had the Shekinah glory in the midst of their holy place. They witnessed it. They saw it. They had received the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the, 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 the Palestinian covenant. All those were given to the nation of Israel by the Creator. They were the ones that were given this privileged service of God through priests and prophets. They received multitude of promises from God, including the Messiah coming through their lineage and heritage. There has been great advantage, there has been great privilege, there has been great preeminence that has been given to Israel as compared to every other nation in the world. Again, all true in spite of immense persecution that they have had to endure. However, the greatest advantage is what Paul says here. Chiefly, here's what's number one though. Here's the biggest advantage you had. Because that unto them were committed The oracles of God. Oracles is logos, the word of God. It was through them the word of God was given. They are the ones that had it. They they possessed it. I mean, that is the greatest advantage any people group could have, any person could have. Uh, Again, it's, it's... where there is no vision, the people perish. That you need that knowledge for that. There's nothing without it. It's, they had truth. They had understanding. They understood what life was about. They knew where they came from. They knew where they were going. They had principles to live by. You would have thought they would have absolutely cherished it, what they had. Yet we know, as we read in the Old Testament, there are times in their history they couldn't even find a copy of the Scriptures. How sad is that? That's also true of many, true many times of us. We have great advantage. 
great advantage. And yet so often we too take it for granted. They took it for granted. It was no longer special to them. It just became familiar. And it started going by the wayside. How true is that? So often it's so sad. The same thing happens to us. We forget of the great privilege and the great advantage we have. I don't have to wonder. I don't. I don't even have to debate in my mind how many genders there are. I don't. Do you understand that's a real debate in people's minds right now? It's not that they're trying to maintain a liberal or a conservative point of view. They don't even know. I have great advantage. I know why I'm here. As you know, I I follow sports. Growing up in Cleveland, you're probably going to follow sports. There was nothing else to do. (laughs) Um, And I read an article yesterday or today. Um, I guess there's a doc. I have not seen that. I guess there's a documentary out about a, a, a quarterback that Cleveland Browns drafted in 2014. And I read some of his writings today, and it was just astounding. He was the Heisman Trophy winner in 2014 out of Oklahoma, Johnny Manziel. Drafted in the first round by the Cleveland Browns. And then he talks about what happens when he arrives in Cleveland, football season starts. And he said, I think I was the most miserable person around. He said, I would go into my condo in Cleveland all by myself and just stare out the window, completely miserable. He goes, this is what I've always wanted. He goes, this was it. I'm a millionaire. I'm a starting quarterback for an NFL team. I just won the Heisman. Here we go. And he said, I was horribly miserable. Because what he had lived for, he realized, was vanity. It was vanity. And then he made the poor decision. You know what he turned to? Alcohol. He turned the party in to try and alleviate the emptiness that he was feeling. We understand what it's all about. Don't take that for granted. Don't get used to it. If you've grown up in a Christian home, don't take for granted the privilege you have of understanding the creator of the universe and knowing what it's all about. The Jews had great privilege, and the truth is they wasted it. Christ gave several parables about that fact. Remember the wedding of the king's son? Where's all the guests? They didn't show up. They didn't show up. The invited ones? The special ones? They didn't show up? No, sir. Go to the highway and hedges. You fill this house. That's us, by the way. That's us coming in. So there was great advantage, and the greatest advantage was that of the Word of God. But none of that advantage freed them from condemnation because God is a righteous judge. They will not be saved because of their heritage. Not at all. The argument was fruitless. Paul was not against. He in no way preached against Israel being special. He was letting them know, just because you have that heritage, you're still going to be judged of God. Then he goes on to the second one that he's going to bring up. The second argument, also put in the form of a question. Verse number three. For those of you getting ready to take Muhammad Lettuce class, if you notice the three questions, you can see how this was developed. 
For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So now, this was a second argument commonly given against Paul's preaching. And it dealt with the covenants or God's promises. I'll explain. See, they argued, Paul attacked or discounted the covenants of God and the promises of God by his preaching. They said, therefore, it can't be true. Ignore it. He didn't believe we're special. We're just like the pagans. And he, he, he dismisses God's covenant with us. So they preach he was wrong. So it's put in the form of a question. They ask, well, what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God or faithfulness of God without effect? So they're saying, even if, even if there is this disobedient Jew that doesn't change God's faithfulness was their argument. And they're saying Paul preached it did. Again, they believe that the Jewish person is not personally faithful. He's still saved because of the covenants and promises of God to the nation of Israel. So they ask, shall the unbelief of you make the faithfulness of God ineffective? Their point being, well, if God, you know, did not save, condemned one, then God's not being faithful to his promises. So they argued Paul attacks the faithfulness of God. Paul strongly shows that is not true. He in no way ever questions or doubts the covenants or the promises of God. Not at all. He makes the case, that's for sure, that you will be condemned as a Jew, but that in no way attacks the covenants or the promises that are given to that nation. God's promises to Israel in no way promised individuals to each person salvation simply because of their heritage. The truth is, they should have realized that why they were, this argument, if they just, but, but again, they were just looking to grasp onto something to stop Paul. Have, had you just thought about the sacrifices you're doing, that should have told you we have a problem. It's not just our heritage. Many people, though, are similar to this in their view. They think, I'm okay, I've been baptized. I went through the ritual, I joined the church, I signed the card. I did what they asked. That's not going to save you at all. So they said, again, the argument is God would not be faithful to his promises if what Paul preached was true, if we're condemned. And Paul responds with, God forbid. I like the wording he used here. The Greek word he used here is the strongest negative possible in the Greek language. He's saying, no, 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 no way. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. This could never be. It is utterly impossible. This can't be. God can't break his word. He can't break his promises. It's impossible. And then he points out, I like where he went with this. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Still with it. Basically, what he said there, he's saying this. With the phrase, basically, he's saying, I don't care if every single person on the planet 
says God is wrong, God's the only one who's true then. That's it. He's showing his steadfastness, his belief in the covenants and in the promises that he in no way questions those. Not at all. And the truth is, someday God is going to keep his, all the covenants and promises with Israel. I mean, just think of Zechariah. They will look on him in whom they have pierced. One day, every single one of those will be fulfilled in their entirety. Because God is faithful to all of his promises. Everything that he promised with Israel will come to pass. By the way, that should cause you to run from things like Catholicism and the enormous portion of Reformed theology that holds to this replacement theology that believes the church has replaced Israel in the promises. No, we haven't. That would mean God wasn't faithful to his promises. Those were promised to Israel, their covenants with them, and they will stay that way. Paul then gives a great illustration of this. Look what he says. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and thou mightest overcome when thou art judged. This. That is from Psalm 51. Do you remember what Psalm 51 was dealing with at the time? David committed adultery and murder. Psalm 51 is written... Right after Nathan called him out. That's when it's written. And David knows judgment is coming from God. David is broken. And by the way, what David endured was severe. It really didn't end his entire life. It was severe and it was strong. So what Paul's argument here is this. He goes, he goes, let me show you how you're wrong. Let me show you how, in spite of the covenants and the promises, that God, that God absolutely will follow to the T. I want to show even King David himself that none of those absolved him of personal responsibility before the Creator. Nathan had just reproved David for his crimes. David knows severe chastisement is coming. The phrase, mightest overcome. Interesting phrase. As studying it out, it's a litigation term used in courts of justice and trials. Let me read from one of the sources here uh, how this phrase was used. He that was accused and acquitted or who was adjudged to be innocent, might be said to overcome or gain the cause. The expression is thus used here as if there was a trial between David and God. God would overcome. That is, would be esteemed pure and righteous in his sentence, condemning the crime of David. Thus you see why Paul chose that verse. He is showing, here is David. Let, let's, let me give you an example, he says, where God judged severely. Disobedience. Again, Paul's point being, just because David was a Jew and king, 
A man with a covenant based upon him that did not stop God from holding him personal, personally accountable for his sin. That is no less true with the great white throne. And in spite of David's sin, God will still fill the covenant he made with him. When Jesus Christ himself is king on this earth, that covenant will be fulfilled. Thirdly, five through eight. So we have the argument against his countrymen. They said that Paul attacked God's people. Then they said God, that Paul attacked God's promises, the covenants. And now the third C, character, that Paul attacked God's character. This is interesting. All right, let's look at verse 5. But if, this is another question. But if our unrighteousness come in the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported. And as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. This is the third argument that was given against Paul's preaching. This one is coming at a little bit different angle at Paul than the first two. Their actual accusation, Paul directly states in verse 8. What they accuse Paul of is in verse 8, the slanders reported, um, uh, that let us do evil that good may come. They, they, they would argue and preach that Paul taught that. And Paul never did. And say, so, well, how did they, how, why, did they, why did they go there? That's what Paul is driving at with the question that was asked. He, he's showing them, I in no way believe that. That is not true. It's not what I preach. Basically, they're saying that Paul promoted the teaching to do evil, that God might look righteous. Look at the verse again in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend or demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Speak as a man. God forbid. It's kind of like when you go into a jewelry store, head into a jewelry store and say you want to look at a diamond. You say, I, I, I want to look at that diamond ring right there. They're going to pull that diamond ring out. They're not just going to hand it to you if it's a decent jewelry store. They're not going to. They're going to get some velvet that's black, and they're going to set it on that black velvet. Why do they do that? To show the contrast, to make it look more brilliant. That's what they're going to do. And, 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 and so the argument they're giving here is that, that Paul would preach... That in our sin, God's glory is more magnified. Because we can see him as more pure. Notice the example he gives. Look what Paul says here. Let me show you. Let me show it because some look confused. Um, Verse 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded uh, 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 through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? There he's sitting in the heart of their argument. He's saying there, he's given an illustration in that verse is what he's doing. He's given an illustration of what they were saying. Uh, of that he, he just uses lie as an example, as a sin. He's saying, he, he, the argument was this, that Paul would think it's all right to lie because when you lie, then God's truth is more magnified 
as a result. Just like you put the diamond on the black velvet to show the contrast. So that they were saying that Paul, that Paul was given license to sin because it showed God as righteous and pure as he is. And so when they would preach it, they would say that Paul attacks the very character of God, the very holiness of God. So how do they get that? Because Paul preached two key words, and it would drive the Pharisees insane. Grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness. They would hear Paul preach this, and they're like, what? Grace and forgiveness. So to try and combat this idea of unmerited favor from God, remember, there's not a more, there's probably another, to my knowledge, there might be, but to my knowledge, and granted, I have more knowledge of how the Pharisees uh, religious rites and, and their activities and probably any other group. But to mine, I, I can't imagine, imagine any other type of religious group in the world that had more legalism, more, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, religious actions than the Pharisees. I mean, what they would do would be, was incredible. And so here comes Paul, a former Pharisee, preaching we are saved by grace through faith that's it. They're like, wait, what? That's how you're saved? And so they began to twist it with things Paul had never said. Never. What they were, what they were proclaiming, as Paul said, you're slanderous in what you say this, that I say we need to do evil that God can be magnified. He said, I don't preach that at all. He said, that's not what I mean by grace and forgiveness. It, it's the same argument given against us. You, you've probably heard it yourself in conversations multitude of times with people when somebody comes up and says, so you believe you can't lose your salvation? I don't. Well, that's a license to sin. It's the same thing they were doing to Paul. No, it's not. I got news for you. Even though what, it's true, once, we're, once we are saved, we are saved. That is not a license to sin. It is not at all in any way. Any person who claims to be saved and believes they can live however they want, and they're just they don't get it. They don't have it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, but all things are become new. You have a desire for God. Remember the story I told you when, when I, I was talking with uh, a, a, a really good pastor friend of mine, and we were both going through how we both of us got away from one, two, three, pray a prayer. And both of us were on our own without ever hearing it preached on one time. I never heard it preached against. It was all I knew. It, it, it was how I knew. It was how I was taught. But under my own circumstances, I began to realize something's horribly wrong with this. I mean, I, get, I had people making decisions every single week and begging them to come to church. I'm like, this just isn't right. And so then he told me his story. His was really good, too. He said, I was out in the middle door to door. He said, the day that, that it changed me, I just simply knew I'm doing something wrong. He said, I knocked on the door. He said, I'm running through it real quick. Romans 3, 10, 3, 23, 5, 8. I mean, we, we, we all had a down pat. I ain't going to pray that prayer. And, and the guy at the door said this to him. He said, that's all I got to do. He said, sir, that's all you got to do. He said, he said, all right. He goes, I'm, he goes, I'm going to do that right now. He goes, I got some sinning I want to do tonight. Let's do this now. And he said, I, he, he was in Bible college. He said, I just froze. He goes, he goes, whatever just happened, I knew it wasn't right. He said, I didn't know what to say to the guy. I said nothing else to him. He said, I turned and walked away. He said, that was the moment I knew I'm doing something wrong. That should never be the response to the gospel, ever. 
ever. No one is saved by saying certain words. It is repentance and faith in Christ. And the moment that happens, it's true, and they call on the Lord, they're saved right there. It's not the power of the word. It's not, all right, who'd like to go to heaven today? Just say this. That's not it. So the Jews were accusing Paul when they heard the message of grace, twisting it. And so they said he's violating the very character of God, promoting sin, saying that God gets glory from it. No, that was never Paul's point. They were attacking things like this that Paul would preach and say, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. That's what they're going after. That's what they're going after. But what did Paul really preach? He answers that when we get to Romans chapter 6, doesn't he? Verse 1. Love it. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, ye not. And he just runs from there in chapter 6 with it. And he goes on here to say, and he makes it clear here in the arguments that there's no way that I believe this. You're slanderous. It, but isn't it amazing what people can take what you say and try, try and twist it to make you look evil? That, this is the one you can tell had Paul really mad. Because they were twisting words, saying stuff he never said. Oh yeah, Paul? Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't listen to that guy. Do you know what that guy actually teaches? He teaches it's okay to sin because God gets glory out of it. What? Oh, he does. He teaches this thing called grace. That when, grace, that when sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So God is more magnified by your sin. He thinks it's all right to sin. And it's not. <laughs> Levi, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to beat you up. I know you did that on purpose. <laughs> Judah's up there with you, isn't he? Yeah, he do that? Judah. My goodness, boy. <laughs> My own grandson. It's time to finish. Close the lights off. Shut down. Stop listening and pray already. It wasn't close, but multitudes of times. I can think of times to be able to twist my words and said, and I'm like, I, I said, what? what? What did I say? You need to go back and listen to that again because that's not what I said. Paul, by the way, when he says, when he gave, I, I need to cover that, by the way, because I think that's pretty neat. In verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. What he's saying there is this. He's given their argument they would say against him right there. He's presented it as if, as if it's in play. And he's showing, I'm giving this right now, not because I believe it. This has nothing to do with righteousness or God. I am speaking as a human with a depraved heart and mind that they would come up with this argument. That, that my sin can commend the righteousness of God. And he says, I speak this as a, as a man. He's mean as a depraved This isn't coming from God. <clears throat> Paul responds to this argument, of course. I like what he does in verse 6 and 8. God forbid. Strongest objection possible he gives to it. For then how shall God judge the world? Verse 8, he says this. He gets even clearer in verse 8. That those who preach that, 
let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. He covers it just in two ways, both dealing with judgment. One, he says, listen, I got news for you, and I believe this God is judging the world. And what you're saying, there will be no need for judgment at all. I in no way preach that. I believe God is going to judge. That's the whole point of my message. Remember, what they were just trying to do is get people not to follow him. So they used these shallow, superficial, unsubstantiated arguments to stop him. And then, of course, he finishes that thing with an outright denial. That matter of fact, anybody that's actually preaching that, they're damned themselves. They're damned themselves. So, Paul had to deal with the arguments against the gospel. And listen, make no mistake about it. When you're out there, you're trying to serve the Lord, especially when it comes to the gospel, you're going to have those who come against you. Just stay by the book. Stay with it. Know why you believe what you believe. Don't run away from it. Just, just stand fast. Stay with it. I mean, if, if the spiritual realm is real, which it is, there's going to be battles. It's not just going to be a cakewalk. And you can see a man here who the, who the Lord ended up using, literally just helped change the world. Just helped change the world. Amazing what he was able to accomplish. He stayed focused on the Lord. He stayed true to the message. And I certainly appreciate that faithfulness. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now, let me ask this question.